Uh, when you hear the word sinner, what do you think? Turn to the person next to you and say, when you hear the word sinner, what do you think? Okay, uh, stick your hand up if the person next to you, if you came up with an interesting, what, what do you think about sinner? Throw a mic at someone who's got their hand in the air. Yeah. Short of the mark. You felt what? Short of the Short mark. Short of the mark. But you're quite tall, Mark, so how does that work? <laughs> Brokenness. Brokenness. Yeah, stick your hand up. Anyone? Judgment. Judgment. Oh, throw it over there. Throw it at, throw it at Keelan. Yeah, it's all fun. That's it. Oh, good throw. Uh, there was one, it was lost was the word. And, and, and my one as well is just everybody. Everybody. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Over there. Wow. <laughs> they but for the grace of God go I. There, yeah, beautiful. Thanks, Kim. Luke had his hand up down the back. Someone throw it backwards to Luke. It automatically turns itself off while you throw it around. Isn't that clever? <laughs> Sorry? Uh, everyone. Everyone. Everyone, yeah. Uh, there, Ben's going right up the back there. Um. Katniss Everdeen, stylist in the Hunger Games. Name is Sinner. Ah, really? Ah, very good. That's a, that gets a that gets a clap for originality. Beautiful. <laughs> okay. Well, um, isn't it interesting that one of the um, one of the perceptions of Christianity is that it's really grim and negative and has this really negative kind of perception of other people and that, that Christianity is all about making you feel bad about yourself because you're a sinner and everyone's a sinner. But actually it gets even more complicated than that because actually often, and I don't know if you think this, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, but I certainly know talking to people who aren't yet kind of who aren't religious or in the church the perception is is christians are really good at making out like everybody else is a sinner but they're kind of okay so i'm okay because i'm good and religious but you all are sinners so the idea of a sinner is um often tied up with the idea of hypocrisy like we're we're good at making out that others are sinners but we're okay and uh, you only have to think in our culture over the last couple of years, the way that uh, the church's attitude to the same-sex marriage issue, the LGBTIQ community, uh, the Izzy Falau tweets and Instagram saga, all of that has portrayed that, that really Christianity is about pointing the finger at a bunch of other people who are sinners out there. All the while, actually, we're a bunch of hypocrites because the Royal Commission has shone a spotlight on a, the, the religious people's own deep depravity and brokenness. So um, that's interesting, I find. I find very fascinating to think about this. And in the middle of this, part of our job as a church is to reclaim this central piece of Christianity that says actually Jesus and Christianity is incredibly good news for sinners, for, for messed up people. And we've got to then think carefully about, you know, what is a sinner and why is it good news and how do we experience that ourselves and how do we help other people experience that and understand that and think about that. And this story uh, is a fascinating story. 
uh, of uh, two people whose lives are messed up. Um, and we're going to unpack the story, think about it, think about what we might learn about sin from this. And um, uh, sin can be defined. I, I wanted to start off um, uh, quoting a fellow um, uh, called Francis Spufford, and he wrote a book on Christianity as an English academic. And he said, sin, uh, one way of understanding sin, because it's got all this baggage, sin is this ineluctable, inevitable human tendency, uh, and he uses a rude word starting with F, which I won't use, to mess things up, he says. That's what sin is. Like, we just, as human beings, mess things up all the time. I mean, we're glorious and wonderful, for sure, but... Um, we all have this tendency in us to mess things up. And it's everywhere. So I could ask for a show of hands, but I won't. But maybe I could. Um, yeah, if I said to you, how many of you have never messed up any relationship? Anyone got a hand? Like, have you ever messed things up? And you, yeah, you've tried and tried and tried, but you've still mucked it up. You know, you show of hands, yeah, you've messed it up. I mean, you know. Uh, in in, in our, our most intimate relationships, in our marriages, our partnerships, our parenting, isn't it true that no matter how hard we try, we actually can't avoid stuffing things up? I know, I certainly can't. I, it's, it's really weird. Like, and it's deep in us, isn't it? And here's, what I, here's one of the things I also find frustrating is, is it's so deep in me that... Um, Surface solutions, self-improvement applied from the outside, don't seem to actually make that much of a lasting difference. Like, do they? So um, the trend at the moment is mindfulness, isn't it? We're, we're all, this is the solution to everything, you know? Uh, climate change, mindfulness, um, you know? House prices, mindful, I'm joking. Mindfulness is, is offered as this panacea, this, and, it's, and there's real benefit in mindfulness in certain situations drawing from this stream of Buddhism. Um, my problem with mindfulness is... <laughs> it doesn't actually seem to get to the core of my inevitable tendency to mess things up. I can switch from being mindful, by the way, and I'm normally often mindful of my own goodness and aren't I wonderful, but that's another story. You know, we can, we can be very mindful about ourselves and very calm and in the moment. And can't you switch from that to like anxiety and fear and gossip and hostility and all kinds of dysfunctional behavior just like that it's really annoying isn't it you you can you can walk out of an inspiring experience maybe you can walk out of church and and between leaving this building where everybody's nice and getting into your car with your spouse you can find yourself just fighting about dumb stuff that's sin that's and it's there in all of us all the time and this story, and the story of Christianity, says actually in the middle of that tendency, there's good news because, spoiler alert, God wants to offer a solution to that that is far deeper than mindfulness or self-improvement, as good as those things are. And gosh, I'm a fan of anything that's going to help me be a little bit better. But, but there's, it's good news because there's actually a solution to what's going on 
the core of my being, uh, my desire to stuff things up. So what we see is a story of two people, two men, um, and they're, they're both similar and different, aren't they? Let me recount the story again in case you missed it. Very simple. Jesus gets to Capernaum. There's a bloke who's paralyzed, so he can't walk. And he has four mates. And his four mates dig a hole in the roof of... Uh, so um, houses at the time had flat roofs and uh, typically made out of packed uh, mud, wattle and daub. Um, and uh, so you could, you'd have wood and mud. And they, they, they dug a hole in the top of this roof uh, because the crowds are everywhere around, and these friends go, Jesus, the gentle healer, has come back to Capernaum. That's incredibly good news. Our friend is uh, um, he's paralyzed, and uh, let's let him through the. Let's let's try and get him close to Jesus. And uh, Jesus sees the friend, uh, sees the faith of the friend and the four mates, and he says, uh, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Son. Your ineluctable tendency to mess things up, this thing that's deeply broken inside of you that separates you from your creator and separates you from other people, this is forgiven. Um, and, of course, everybody around, the, the religious lawyers, the teachers, they go, hang on, hang on, hang on, this is completely wrong. Like, only God can forgive sin because the tendency to mess things up is actually, in the Bible's worldview, an offense against the creator. So... Um, the teachers rightly say about Jesus, hang on, you can't forgive the, the sin of somebody that's not directed against you. It would be like me saying, you know, if you've had a fight, fight with your spouse, <laughs> on behalf of your spouse, I forgive you for the way you treated them last night. And doesn't, who cares what I think? It's what your spouse thinks, right? So they say, no, Jesus, how can you do that? Well, of course, the point Jesus is making is, He's actually God himself come to earth to deal with exactly this problem. And so um, he says, oh, I know what's going on for you guys. You, you, you don't get it. You don't understand that I can, I've got authority as God himself wrapped up in flesh to forgive this bloke and anyone else who needs forgiveness. So he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to, I'll just show you that, uh, you know, what do you think is harder? Is it harder to actually forgive sins or to say someone be healed and get them to, now, from a human point of view, what's harder? Well, any charlatan can say, your sins are forgiven. Like, I could say to you now, well, your sins are forgiven. But if you're really sick, I couldn't actually say, like, let, I can't actually heal you. So they say, well, I'll show you what. I'll demonstrate that I can heal this bloke. And if you, if you believe that, also believe that I can do, I can stand in God's place. Because only God can heal. Uh, and so I'm healing him. And therefore, I've also got authority to forgive his sins. Do you get the logic of the argument? And um, so Jesus does this. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I think um, it raises lots of questions and also answers some of them. Some of the questions are this, like um, the man's paralysis, physical brokenness, sickness, is not a direct result of the human tendency to stuff things up. But it's part of the same broader picture. You see, our tendency to stuff things up, our sin, uh, the Bible says, is, is part of this big picture of a whole world that continually doesn't work the way it's meant to work. So uh, our souls don't work the way they're meant to work because we stuff up all the time. Our relationships don't work the way they're meant to work. Our bodies don't work the way they're meant to work. The world doesn't work the way it's meant to work. And so, geez, so, so everything's connected. 
and Jesus' authority over the man's body not working the way it's meant to work is part and parcel of his same authority over this man's relationships in this instance between God and himself not working the way it's meant to work. And so Jesus heals him and says, your sins are forgiven. Um, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. So he did. Got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. I'm sure the owner of the house would rather Jesus had said, take up your mat, go back upstairs, and fix the hole in my roof. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't do this. He says, go home. He goes home. He's healed. And everyone's like, whoa. The second story... uh, Jesus is just walking along beside uh, the Sea of Galilee, the lake, and he starts to teach them. And as he walks along, he sees Levi at a tax collector's booth. No. And he says to him, follow me. That's it. So Levi gets up, follows him, and uh, goes and has dinner with Jesus. And everyone's really astounded and annoyed and angry at this because they go, how can this guy, uh, how can Jesus, a teacher, a rabbi, hang out with a tax collector who is an an evil person? A tax collector was a traitor. He had, uh, and a thief and a liar who, to survive economically and to get rich, would get a license from the Roman authorities who were the invading, occupying force to collect taxes on behalf of the Romans and was allowed to steal from the local population and gather more taxes than he actually paid to the Romans. As long as it wasn't egregious, he could get away with it. Uh, so he was a, you know, um, maybe the only equivalent in our recent history in Australia would be how might an in you know, maybe in the 1950s, might an indigenous community of Australians have treated one of their own who collaborated with the, uh, the colonial white authorities to steal kids from their community uh, and maybe make a profit from it. That, that might be as bad as... Imagine, in Australia, imagine if you collaborated, if you're an indigenous person collaborating with the authorities to betray your people, have kids stolen, and along the way you were actually making money out of and advancing yourself and getting status and security. I mean, imagine how the local community might view such a person. It'd be awful, right? Sorry, most politicians would be like, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> So here's a question uh, for you to think about. Um, In what ways were these two men different? And in what ways were they similar? How were they different? Let's start with that. Let's pretend it's not a rhetorical question. How how are they they different? What's the difference on the surface between these two people? One was able-bodied and one wasn't. Yeah. This is what, so, so another way of saying that is um, one's brokenness and dysfunction was entirely visible to everyone and touched every part of his life. He, there was no doubt that his life was a mess, right? 
Okay. Ah, interesting. One, yeah, so the, the paralyzed guy actually had a whole community supporting him. Alpheus, uh, a Levi, was sitting by himself, and he was probably, he would have been socially isolated. He was kind of, he might have been rich and getting ahead, but buddies with, and buddies with the Romans and other collaborators, but excluded and marginalized within his community, yeah. Except for all the other people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's a whole community of sinners and tax collectors. But the tax collectors, so maybe a way to say it, he's, ex- he's excluded from polite society and from religious society. And I suspect even the tax collectors, they're they categories of sin. So even a tax collector probably wouldn't hang out with a prostitute. Uh, and a tax collector wouldn't hang out with a leper. So there's all kinds of categories of social isolation and alienation and exclusion. Yeah, obviously deeply offensive to the broader community that Jesus would hang out with these people, yeah? How else are they different? Ah, par- there's a choice, yeah. So the paralyzed man just participates in this brokenness. It's just there. The tax collector made a choice, yeah. Good, yeah, really. Oh, one's full of humility, the other's self-righteous. Hey, maybe. I reckon. I reckon the paralyzed guy, yeah, he, he had no illusions that he was getting ahead in life. Uh, yeah. What is his sin? Yeah, what is the paralyzed man's sin? Because it's not being paralyzed. That's a really good question, isn't it? That's a great segue into our second question. In what way are they similar? They're both sinners. Thanks, Jen. (laughs) Okay. So um, they're both sinners, which means they both have this ineluctable tendency to stuff things up. So let's go back to Keelan's question. What do you reckon the sin, what what can we learn about sin from the fact that Jesus thinks the paralyzed man is uh, sinful? Sinful by nature and original sin. Wow, that's, a, that's some big concepts there, man. Everyone's a sinner. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, obviously being paralyzed is not a sin, or is it? Do you think he was paralyzed because he sinned? Really? It does. It's not very inclusive of people with disability. Not at all. <laughs> it's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, Jesus was asked this question about a guy who was born blind later on in the Gospels because it's a question, um, it's a very important question. Jesus, people came to Jesus and said, and this guy's born blind, was that his fault or his parents' fault? And Jesus said, neither. Um, stuff happens in the Aramaic, that's what he said. Um, we don't know. Like, there's a, there's a mess in the world. So the physical, the paralysis was not a result of this guy's moral choices. But still, being broken, disabled, messed up didn't mean that his heart still had a problem, right? That seems to be the issue. So how are they similar? They're both, they're both a mess. How, how, in what other ways are they similar? Well, actually, that's the biggest similarity, isn't it? <laughs> they're both a mess. 
And because they're both a mess, what happens to them in the story? Yeah, they both, they, both, they both need Jesus and they both are shown grace by Jesus. And what's the result in, in their lives? Like a dramatic improvement, right? Like dramatic, instantaneous, extraordinary, wonderful change in their lives. But it's changed from the inside. I, th- I think that's, what's, that's the point Jesus is making. You know, he's been healing all these people in Mark chapter 1, and, and he wants to point out that what, Jesus, what God is interested in is not just the surface of our lives, but the inner brokenness, the sin, the tendency we have to mess things up. He wants to restore us and heal us from the inside. So what's wrong with both of them? What's gone wrong? At their heart, what the Bible will say is we've actually we've become disconnected from God and from other people and even from ourselves. There's an alienation and a brokenness and a, a capacity and a reality of messing everything up that permeates everything. And the solution is, is Jesus' forgiveness. Is God actually forgiving us, showing us grace and mercy and, and where do they end up included? Like the paralyzed guy gets up and walks home. And he's included. He can now be a productive member of society. His life is put back together. He's restored in his relationship with God. He's restored in his relationship with his body. He's restored in his relationship with his village. He can go home. And the tax collector, man, the same thing. Like God has welcomed him in. And sat down and eaten with him. Like, I think that's important. The tax collector would have known. Uh, Let me back this up. Have you ever, and, and don't shout out the answer here. Have you ever known you were going to do something wrong, but chosen to do it anyway? (laughs) Most of us have. Maybe only when you were a kid and you're all much too spiritual and sorted out to ever do that now. But you know when you know, you kind of, you know in your heart of heart that you shouldn't do X and you kind of do it anyway because you think it'll work out well for you. And, and you know that kind of messes with you, right? It really does. You live with regrets. You live with all kinds of consequences. I think the tax collector was like this. He'd made a choice. He said, I want, and I don't know why he made that choice. Like, maybe he had, maybe he had like eight kids he had to feed. And, uh, and his, the, the crops had failed on, on his little subsistence plot of land. And he'd gone, this is, this, is the, this is all I can do, right? I'm desperate. You know, it's the same reason many women in the day were, were drawn into um, occupations that would, would make them outcasts into the, into the sex industry. You know, prostitution is a is the, the means of survival for many women in the world. Always has been. and Put there by desperate situations. And maybe the, maybe the tax collector was that, just desperate. Maybe he was just greedy. Maybe he'd grown up in a nice middle-class family in Jerusalem and he'd gone to yeshiva and he was all very religious. And then he'd gone, man, I'm not getting ahead here financially, but I can make a whole lot of money as a tax collector. Maybe his life was great and he just went, I'm going to get some money, whatever it was. Man, he would have known that he was messed up. 
the fact he couldn't go to the temple, the fact that he was shunned by anyone who was religious. And he ends up included that God himself has dinner with him, which is extraordinary. And then Jesus says this, which I love. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, so everyone's grumbling now. Why is Jesus looking after this miserable? Why is he hanging out with with tax collectors and sinners? Um, And he says this. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Okay, so let me translate that last phrase. What is a righteous person? Well, um, there's a concept, uh, a phrase I... uh, I'll back up and say... uh, Jonathan Haidt, who's my current favorite author, he's on tour in Australia at the moment. He's a moral psychologist. He's got a book called The Righteous Mind, and he's got another book called The Coddling of the American Mind, which is fantastic, and the happiness uh, effect. And Jonathan Haidt says this, an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. So he's a secular, irreligious New York Jew, and he goes, an obsession with righteousness is the normal, is the, the normal human condition. Okay, now, what is Righteousness. Uh, There's another New York writer who I've been reading who says another word for righteousness you can think of as enoughness. Uh, Righteousness is the the drive to to be enough. And and when you start thinking about righteousness as enoughness, don't you realize how we're all captive to the drive to be enough? Are you healthy enough? Like we live in a constant state of anxiety that we're not healthy enough. Are you skinny enough? Uh, how many of you feel like you're skinny enough? Don't show your hands. Yeah, thanks, Micah. You, yeah, you're like, but the only one. When none of us feel skinny enough, are you rich enough? How many of us feel rich enough? Mm, no, sort of. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. How many of us feel intelligent enough? Could always do with a bit more. How many of you feel popular enough? How many of you feel loved enough? How many of us feel um, energetic enough? (laughs) How many of us feel well-rested enough? So... What you can, this religious impulse around righteousness, if you, if you stop and you go, actually, it, just because you might not go to temple or to church doesn't mean you're not trying to find righteousness. Because if you understand righteousness as a sense of enough, we're all trying to build a sense that we're enough. I'm good enough. I'm loved enough. I'm skinny enough. I'm healthy enough. I'm safe enough. I'm secure enough. I'm a good enough parent. I'm a good enough partner. Like, we're captive, like, am I enough, am I enough, am I enough? And we're actually on a treadmill of proving our enoughness. And Jesus says this. He says, listen, I've come for people who realize they'll never be enough. That's what he's saying. Because the righteous person is the person who thinks that they can win at this game of establishing their enoughness. 
That's all he's saying. He's saying, if you think you can make your life work, you're good enough for God, you're good enough for yourself, you're good enough for life, you're good enough in every other way, if you've got your life together, then uh, Jesus is not for you. Jesus is for people who go, I'm not enough, and I'm never going to be enough, and nothing I can do will ever make me enough. I'm never going to be other person-centered enough for my marriage to be perfect. I'm never going to be other person-centered enough for my parenting to be perfect. I'm never going to be religious enough to keep God happy. I'm never going to be enough. And, and that's what Jesus says. He says, I'm not an, I've come for those who aren't enough. And I mean, gosh, aren't, isn't the paralyzed guy and the tax collector, aren't they examples of people who manifestly clearly at varying different ways obviously aren't enough? And they understood it. There was no pretense. The paralyzed guy couldn't pretend that he had enough to make life work because he clearly didn't. And the tax collector was very clear that he was not good enough for God and not good enough for polite society. And Jesus said, I came for those people. Okay, so the good news is if you feel like you're not enough, you're in good company. And the good news is, in fact, the way to connect with God, paradoxically, is to realize that you're not enough and nothing you can do will ever make you enough for God. And that's exactly why Jesus came for people like you and me. God came towards us in our not-enoughness to be everything that we couldn't be, to embrace us and love us and welcome us and heal us and restore us and draw us in when there was nothing in us that was enough. <laughs> and to get us off the treadmill of trying to prove ourselves to be enough. Get off the treadmill. If God thinks that you're enough, if he loves you enough to die for you and to bring you home and restore you and heal you, then you're enough. You're enough in him. There's two kinds of people here today, those who think they're enough without God and those who know that they'll never be enough. But then it gets a little more complicated. So some of, some of, you, some of us here, maybe it's very clear, we are so aware of our sin of our tendency to mess things up that will never be enough. And we're here just saying to God, yeah, man, I need you. And let me tell you, if you're in that place, you're in a really good spiritual place. But there, there can be those, there, are other, there can be others of us, and this is a danger of becoming a Christian and a danger of becoming religious. Let me speak very frankly to you. A danger is I start off realizing I'm not enough. I start off realizing I'm a mess who needs grace. I start off trusting Jesus going... Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And I, I start there, and then what happens? I gradually spend more and more time in church, and I get my life together, and I polish up my outsides, and I, I stop doing all this you know, really bad stuff. And, and slowly, you know what seeps into our souls? Well, pride and religion and the idea, I am enough. I, I used to not be enough, but now as a good evangelical Anglican. I'm enough because I've been here a long time and I've done what's right. And I, you know, I'm, and, and you know what happens is we start off with a deep sense of our brokenness and humble because we're a mess. And then this is the weird thing is God heals us. 
we slowly start to go, you can just imagine, right? The, the paralyzed guy, yeah, maybe he became like a, maybe he became like a really good athlete. I don't know. Maybe like in the inter-village games, he become, became like the 100-meter champion. And, and he forgot that, that a, a few years ago, he was just a paralytic guy. And, and maybe he starts to go, wow, I, I'm, I'm this great athlete because I train hard. And I, I'm on a, I do my high-intensity interval training regularly. And I work hard. And unlike these other fat slobs in the village. And maybe that bloke over there who limps, if only he trusted God more, his limp would be fixed. And then he could compete with me. But look at me. I'm a good athlete now. And he forgets. It wasn't so long ago that he was a paralytic. And maybe the tax collector's the same. Maybe he starts off going, oh, I was a mess. And then maybe Jesus embraces him. And maybe old Levi ends up, you know, as an elder in the church. And he's he's rich now because he made all this money as a tax collector. But now maybe he's got another job. Maybe he's retired on all the money and now he's an elder in the church and, and now, now the church is all full of polished, put-together people and the Levi's like, well, you know, gosh, there's a, there's a guy who lied on his tax returns in church. Poor, oh, we don't have people like that here. I mean, look, I turned my life around and, and church is for the people who've got their life together now. And it just kind of happens, doesn't it? I mean, I'm, and if you think it won't happen to you, just give it time. Because <laughs> even as people who, who are in the church, we have this ability to mess things up and pride creeps in. And there's a very, gr- very great danger in that, isn't there? Um, Dave Zahl says this, A culture dominated by outward demonstrations of piety will become an increasingly merciless place full not only of self-justification but self-consciousness and fear, it will be a place that crucifies rather than forgives. <laughs> and this is the danger in, in all religion. It was the danger of the Pharisees then. It's the danger in our church today that, that we forget that we all started off as paralyzed people and as tax collectors, as a mess. And we all came and need love and forgiveness and we needed Jesus to make us enough. And so then we, we become, we polish up the outsides and we do put our lives together and we forget and we become dominated by demonstrations of piety and we become cruel and heartless to each other, to the vulnerable, to the truly vulnerable, to those who haven't yet got their lives in a place of middle class conformity like we have, which is a good thing, right? It's okay to stop being a tax collector. It's good to be able to walk instead of being paralyzed, but never forget that any deep, meaningful change in our lives is a result of grace of God's work, right? We can't ever forget that. And if we do, we'll become a community that crucifies rather than forgives. Because when I remember that it's all about grace, it's all about God being enough for me, I'm always going to be a man who forgives. It's going to be my impulse my second nature, because I know that I'm always going to be someone who needs forgiveness and has received it myself. That's the Christian vision of life. So the Christian life is repentance, realizing I'm not enough, trusting Jesus, and then pursuing ongoing restoration of all things. Just come on. 
keep, keep, keep wrecking, repenting, keep trusting, keep working for the restoration and the healing of all things. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you will uh, help us in this church, like the paralytic and the tax collector, to uh, find the, the forgiveness that we need from Jesus, the healing that we need from Jesus. I pray that in our church we will never look down on anyone else. I pray that we will always approach each other from a place of grace and mercy, that we'll never lose sight of our own need of grace, that we will be a community that is extraordinarily embracing and welcoming and, and inclusive because, because none of us by ourselves are enough, but, but because of Jesus' love, everybody is, in, is good enough to have a place here. And I pray that we can, in a world where people are running themselves ragged on the treadmill of trying to justify themselves, of proving their enoughness, and doing so much damage to themselves and, uh, and other people and our community, in this, in this context, Lord, may we as a church hold out this great good news that there's a way off the treadmill, there's a way to being enough in God's family. And we ask this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.